This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 9? Um, as I was uh, studying this weekend, you know, as you might guess, I, I, was, you know, I was on the beach and just uh, full of the Holy Spirit and studying all week long. Um, it's full of something, I'll tell you that, but it wasn't. Uh, but I did, spend, uh, I did spend a lot of time um, in the weeks leading up to this because we're in the, I mean, Romans 9 is like, the Brazilian meat steakhouse of Romans. Like, this is like we're just shaving meat off at this point. Like, you're going to have the meat sweats by the time we get out of chapter 11. This is just nothing but meat. And I thought a lot about that as we're getting into this. And we're just going to take our time going through uh, these chapters. As I was thinking about this, and specifically Romans 9 and Paul and his anguish, and could I you know, I would replace myself for you if I could all. And I was, it actually reminded me of when my son was 18 months old, um, Ethan. And we've had three daughters up to that point. And three daughters, um, I don't know how y'all's daughters were, but they weren't exactly out in the yard with machetes and getting stitches and stuff. But, but by the time Ethan was 18 months old, he would look at a couch and think, I'll bet I could jump from here to there. And one night, and it's never, you know, it's never in the morning, it's always at night, he, he, he misjudged uh, at 18 months and face-planted um, onto the coffee table. Was it a coffee table? TV stand. doesn't matter. What happened was, when he stood up, sorry, cover your ears if you're squeezy, uh, queasy, his lip was hanging off of his face. Like, it was just, like, I didn't even know you could do that. He just bit it, somehow bit the whole thing all the way through, and it was just flopping down. And my first initial thought, it's 9 o'clock at night, I'm tired, I'll bet we could tape that. You know what I mean? <laughs> It'd probably stick by morning. <laughs> Fortunately, he has a mother, and so we went to Vanderbilt uh, Children's Hospital. And, um, and by the I mean, you know, just if you've been to the Children's Hospital waiting room, ER, uh, you'll be there a while. Right, and they're not exactly serving free beverages or I mean, you're just sitting there. And so at this point, he's actually working the room now, um, lip hanging off his face, introducing himself to the people, and um, having no idea what's in store for him. I didn't know what was in store for him because we get in there, and the and the doctor tells us, "Yeah, we can we can definitely sew this back together." But here's the thing: if we uh, inject him with uh, what's the stuff that they put in there to Novocaine? No. Lidocaine, cocaine, what? That's a, that's a wrong hospital. Um, if we do that, his lip will swell up and it will heal wonky and it'll look really bad. So we're going to need to do this, I mean, basically Civil War style, like give him a shot of whiskey and a bullet to bite and just wish him the best. And so um, they ask us to leave the room which I thought was kind. Uh, they didn't want him to associate us with human rights violations and torture. And so, and in walks this very large man nurse um, who like leans over the top. So Ethan's head is here. He leans over him, 18 months old, to hold him still 
while this guy just literally field-stitched him back together, we could hear him down the hall. It was not a pleasurable experience for him. And that night, I thought, because, you know, I'm a father. I would do anything to make that pain stop for him. I would replace myself, put me there, and let me be the one. Now, the problem was I couldn't do that because my lip wasn't hanging off my face. He had to be the one that would go through that. There was nothing I could do to replace him, but I'm reading this and thinking this is kind of what Paul is saying about his people. This, this is like his brothers, his sisters, his moms, his dad, all that stuff, uh, his Jewish friends, family, that I would be cursed if it meant that it could, they could be in the kingdom of God. Like This is the angst that he is feeling as he is writing this. I speak, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And then he goes on in verse 6. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring, speaking of Isaac's children. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. And yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Very, very potent verse right there that makes some people wince a little bit, and we will definitely not skip over that. But verse 14 goes on, but what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and your word today with humble hearts, with an open mind and heart to you, Lord. We want to hear your truth. Uh, we want to know, Lord, the, what is these words mean for us, this light for our path. Would you speak to us through that today? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So Paul, chapter 9, okay, we remember chapters 1 through 8 
is the gospel, right? Straight up, Romans 1, you are falling away from God. You get into chapter 3, 4, 5, grace, you're saved, righteous, all that stuff. Chapter 9 is not a detour, right? It's not a commercial break for Israel, and then we'll get back to our story. It is part of the gospel, not an interruption of the gospel. Because when he starts talking about these things about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, doesn't that make you kind of pucker up a little bit? We haven't even got to Pharaoh yet. Like he raised him up to harden him and uh, did he harden him or did he not? Like these are questions that we ask today. And they're questions Paul asked all those years ago. In fact, three questions that he asked in chapter nine. And chapter nine answers those questions. And by the way, the same questions we're asking today. Is there unrighteousness with God? Like that's verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Is there righteousness? Righteousness just means this, was he right? Do you know what I mean? Like in our modern vernacular right now, what we've seen is a lot of people making, how shall we say this, healthcare experts, making declarations. And the question was, were they right? Were wrong, right? So they were not righteous because they weren't right. When they're right, so that, that's God, it was, is God right when he makes these decisions? The next one that says is, uh, it's verse 19, so why does he yet find fault if Jacob I, before they were ever born, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, if, if God's sovereignty has declared that you're going to do this before you're ever born, why do you yet find fault? Why does he still blame us, I think is the NIV version of that. Verse 19, so that's a question for today. Is God right? And if he is, then why don't I just do everything I want to do then? How is it possible that he, you know, he still finds fault with me? And then the third question, which is the question, the right question, well, now what do we say? What do we say about that? Verse 30. If God is right, if God is just, if God isn't unjust, right, then what do we say about the rest of these things that we just talked about? That's chapter nine. We are not going to rush through this, uh, take a couple of weeks for it. But he, as this chapter unfolds, we're just going to hit two of these today. He answers with four different sections. We're going to hit two of them. The first section is the faithfulness of God. Like, am I, can I trust him? The second one is the righteousness of God, uh, which is verses 14 through 18. The third one is justice, which is 19 through 29. And then the th- uh, fourth one is grace, which is verses 30 and 33. Those four sections answer the three questions that Paul asked then that most of us are asking now in one form or fashion, even if it's not the same language, it's the same idea behind the question. And so today, we're gonna, ask, we're gonna talk about the faithfulness and we're gonna talk about his righteousness. And that's where we're gonna park for these. So verse one through 13 is his faithfulness. And the idea of his faithfulness is very, very simple. If God promised something, can I count on him to deliver what he promised? And Paul is talking about Israel in a very legitimate way with a very legitimate question, which is we, are, we have been uh, mistreated, we have been abused. We have, at this point, he's writing to a church where the people of Israel, the Jewish people in that church, had been exiled for 10 years. 
right? It's like everybody in here gets exiled to like, I don't know, Tuscaloosa for like 10 years. And then we, fans of Tuscaloosa, uh, and then suddenly we're back and you're back at Conduit, but the church is the same, but it's not the same anymore. And the town is the same, but it's not the same. And there's just questions. How is, is God faithful? Is this the promise that he made to us? How is, it, how is this possible, the faithfulness of God? And you ask that question too. You ask it when you say something like, man, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Why is this still happening to me? You ask that when you say, man, I have prayed God, heal me, and he hasn't. You ask it when you say, I just, if I just pray harder, remember, and I know what you mean when you say this, but when you see if someone posts, okay, everybody needs you to pray really, really hard, because you're asking God, right, if I pray harder, then I might get what I'm asking for. Th those are different versions of, is God being faithful to me? And the answer is yes, if you are asking God to keep a promise that he actually made. Right. Half the time I got sideways and get sideways with God, if I'm being real honest, it's because I'm asking him to keep a promise that he didn't make. It's what he says here. Here's the actual promise, right? The actual promise was that the child was going to come through Abraham, but not just Abraham. It would come through Sarah, the child of the promise. And, and if I might add just a little sidebar, just in case I haven't offended anybody yet. Um, some people say this specific little passage of verse, use this to build something that's called replacement theology. Replacement theology says that God is now done with Israel and all the promises that were for Israel are now in Christ, in Christians, and that Israel is no longer the, the promise. And that's a, a little bit of an oversimplification. And I'm here, um, I wanna say this as clearly as I can, uh, that's damnable theology. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, when he lost his mind, okay, does, does not negate the first half of his life, okay? But when you go down the road that Israel has been replaced and that God is done with Israel, anti-Semitism is just a very, very short walk from there. And Martin Luther's last few writings were very anti-Semitic and very like, is that the same guy? How is it even possible that it's the same guy? Now here's why that's important and why I think I, I really want you to hear, at least to contemplate what I'm saying. If Abraham, if God made a promise to Abraham and he didn't keep it to Abraham, how can I trust that he would keep his promise to me? To put it differently, if it's true for the Jew, it's true for you. Now, whoever does that bumper sticker, Nathan Ross, I'm looking at you. No, uh, I just want a piece of the action. That's all I'm saying, I just want a little piece. <laughs> No, look, I'm being, kind of being silly, but it's true. If God made a promise to Abraham, and that, this is the promise. Messiah was going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. Come through Jacob, not Esau. But Messiah was coming through. There was a promise made to Abraham for his bloodline, which and it actually, I mean, it's very clear the way he says it, that the child of the promise was Isaac. And not the child of the promise is you and I. The child of the promise was Isaac, right? Was 
not Esau. And so we are adopted in, we're going to get into that in a couple of chapters, how we are now grafted into Israel. But God still has a plan for Israel. And those promises of I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you still stand today. And it's very important for us to hold on to that, to know that God is going to keep his promise to them and we know that he'll keep his promise to us. He is faithful. And the way that we know that he is faithful is that he keeps promises that he actually made, not the ones that I want him to have made. And there are promises in the scripture, and they are yes in Christ. They are yes. They are amen. But be very, very careful to ask God to, and to hold God accountable, to rebuke God, to resist God for promises he didn't tell you that he was going to do. The promise for you, right, is that in Christ you are a new creation. In Christ, right, you are more than conquerors. And in Christ, Jesus promised you will have troubles in this world. That's a promise. And I don't know about you, but Jesus has kept that promise to me. (laughs) All those who are in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I've never once put that on a three by five card in my mirror in my bathroom, but it is as true. Do you know what I mean? But it is as true <laughs> as I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like they're both promises in the word. And so my point is, is if you get angry at God and you're questioning his faithfulness, make sure you're questioning the faithfulness to the promise he made, not to the one that you want him to make. Right. Now, part of where this gets real sticky is we're now stumbling into this idea of uh, predestination, determinism versus free will. Now, churches split over this. Denominations are formed because of this. Really mean emails are written about this. And you can write those to mo at conduitchurch.com. Wow. That's cold, ain't it? <laughs> Look, I've been in Mexico. You can't get me. <laughs> I don't care, man. I've been living down in Mexico on refried dreams. Is that that the song like that? (laughs) If we get caught up in that very specific, did God choose me? Did I choose him? Did I have a choice or did I not? Now, by the way, in a minute, we're going to, like next week, we're going to talk about it. He's going to talk about Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened so that God might be glorified. And he's going to say, does that make God unjust? I'm just going to give you a little clue. In Exodus, it says 20 times that his heart was hardened. 10 times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. 10 times it says God hardened his heart. Who hardened his heart, God or Pharaoh? Yes. So we'll talk about that next week. But my point is to say that this question of his faithfulness and the question of all this is a very legitimate question. But what I want to leave you with, at least in this idea for today, is this is not just a theological question. This is a philosophical question. This is a scientific question, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, physicists, philosophers are asking the same kinds of questions that we ask without God attached to them. If you were to study 
astrophysicists and read what they say and they talk about this, literally just the size of the universe that's so vast that we can't possibly understand it and would say that if you get in a, a rocket ship and you travel at whatever the top speed is, which is about a half a million miles an hour, it would take you 55,000 years and you still wouldn't be at the edge of the universe because there is no edge of the universe. You would end up right back where you started. They can't explain it and it sure sounds an awful lot like infinite no beginning and no end. The deeper you go into these types of subjects, the more theological their answers sound. The Big Bang Theory, which by the way was created, the term was created as a pejorative. The guy that coined it meant it as an insult. He didn't believe in God. But you know what he said? That within a second, with, I mean, I'm sorry, not even a second, like a millisecond, Everything that is was created in that moment. All the materials of the universe were created within that millisecond. Those are theological ideas. But you know another idea that is being floated around right now in the last 20, 30 years is determinism versus free will. They're trying to be a Calvinist without a Calvin. <laughs> Sam Harris is a very famous atheist. Sam Harris says that what we're talking about right here of God choosing and God doing is a very dangerous idea. It's one of the reasons why they say that God is dangerous and the idea of religion is dangerous. But they would say that the illusion of free will is actually true. We actually don't have free will. That you didn't choose the genetic gene pool. You didn't choose how you were raised. You didn't choose where you were born. And so all of your decisions are just programmed into you based upon what had happened to you. It makes you a victim, not a victor, by the way. And it says to you that you have no choice in this matter. Now, here's the major difference. They say that if I say that God determines and God is sovereign, that that's dangerous. But if the universe decides is sovereign, that's not dangerous. The universe says the strong eat the weak. The universe says that only the fittest must survive. The universe says that you are a cosmic accident that just happened to happen and will one day disappear completely without any choice of your own. That's dangerous. If, if that's your God, that is not a loving God, that is a literal, amoral, blob of electronics that may or may not work in your favor. But I would say to you, wherever you come down on free will versus determinism versus all those things, that I can tell you this, that if you're gonna go down the Sam Harris one, that's a very sad, very lonely, and very heartless and cruel determinism. You see, we on the other hand have a God that if he determined and is the one that chooses you, and is the one that makes these decisions. I will have compassion on who I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. We know that he is a good God and we know this because of what he did in Christ on the cross. The universe did not die for you. The universe demands that you die for it. So we know the faithfulness of God, the promises of God are good and true. And we know also what Paul goes on to say, that not only is he faithful, but he is righteous, that he is right, that he makes right decisions, that when he made a call, that it was the right call. 
When he said something was good, it was good. When he said something was bad, it was bad. He is a 100%. He bats a thousand in this on being right. And when he says here in verse 14, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. And thank God for that. For those of you who want it to be about how good you can be, because it doesn't seem fair that if, I, if someone was, this guy was good and this guy was bad, and it doesn't seem fair, none of us are good. If you travel with us to North Africa and have dinner with Muslims who are quite lovely people, they will serve couscous often at those dinners. And you know why? Because it's about good works versus bad works. If they serve a potato, that's one good work. If they serve couscous, that's like a million good works. Do you understand? This is a true story. This is their life. Because if it's about good or bad, you never know what the score is. It's a horrible way to live, and it is an impossible way to find salvation. It's why he's so adamant here that this is not the way you're going to find salvation. It's not the way Israel was going to find it. It's not the way Muslims are going to find it. And it's sure as heck not the way Christians are going to find it. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion. It is not about you and your work. It is about him and his goodness. And we can be so utterly thankful for that. Because in his sovereignty, he chose you. If you're in this room, he has chosen you. And in his sovereignty, you have chosen him. And how do I explain that? I don't. There was a seminary professor, I guess seminary is very loose to call the Bible college we went to, uh, who said these words. Uh, he said that if you try to explain, how does he get this right? Try to explain election, you're going to lose your mind. Try to explain it away, and you will lose your soul. Right. We need both of them to understand in this. We're never going to understand it, but we can't write it off because it's part of our walk with Christ. There's just something about his choices, his election, and they're good, and they're right. And I was thinking about it with just even with my wife. We saw a film that I don't want to say what the name was. You've, you'll know it if I say it. If you haven't seen it, don't worry. But it's the, sort of the, the clincher at the end was the, the main character had to, uh, his, his lady friend or whatever, had to forget that he ever existed. Right, and so at the end, it's, oh, I love you, I love you, but you'll, have, you'll come back and you'll win me over, whatever, this is how the movie is ending. And I, we get home that night and I ask my kids this very legitimate question, it was kind of got in my mind a little bit. If, if Shannon forgot everything about me, right, everything, for the last 27 years, could I get her to fall in love with me again? And my kids were vehemently no. <laughs> like, I'm talking no hesitation. Could have created a PowerPoint presentation about why I couldn't pull this off again. Ethan summed it up with pretty much one sentence. Well, Dad, you know, you're kind of not nice sometimes. And so I don't know that you could, I'm like, well, how about you're grounded, you know, for the rest of your life? You're It hurt my feelings just a little bit. But, here, but the thing is, it's probably true because there were things that came about in God's faithfulness 
and in God's righteousness at the right moment when I needed her and she needed me and it was a moment orchestrated before the foundations of the earth and somehow God brought us together for that point and that moment so that there even is an Ethan to ground to begin with. Because he wouldn't be here otherwise. So it was that moment and that time. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's design. And I want you to know that I believe in this room that you have God's faithfulness. You have God's design in your life right now. And even when you can't see it happening, he is working on your behalf, just like he did for Israel, just like he did for Paul. He's doing it for you. The last thing I want to share with you from this is really the answer, the question we need to be asking is, well, what does that mean about me then? What's true about God is he's faithful. What's true about God is he's righteous. And what's true about me is I'm not. And what's true about me is it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And I'm super grateful for that. You see, he quotes here in the chapter right before in Romans 8. We were there, what, a month ago? I don't remember. It's been a while. We had Christmas. But in Romans 8, he actually quotes from, a, well, actually, you know what? If you've got your Bibles, and you should have your Bibles, if you want to look very spiritual, you have your Bibles. Psalm 44, he quotes from Psalm 44 in Romans 8, and I want to show you what he is saying here, because in Romans 8, Eight, when he talks about we are like sheep that are led to the slaughter, he is quoting specifically from chapter 44 of Psalms. And in chapter 44 of Psalms is a very similar conversation that the psalmist is having, which is Israel saying, we have done all of this right. We have, we've been good. We have followed your decrees. We have been to church. We sat in the front row. We tithed. And why is this not working for us? That's almost the entirety of the Psalms. And by verse 23, he says, Maybe something you've said, some version. Awake, O oh Lord. Why are you sleeping? God, are you, is anybody out there? It's me, Margaret. Like, are you there, God? Like, thank you. Um, have you prayed that prayer? Like, that's the, like, awake, God, raise. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? You forget our misery and our oppression. That's a very honest prayer. Brought down to the dust, verse 25. Bodies cling to the ground, rise up and help us. And this is the line that I want you to see. So he's already talked about sheep led to the slaughter. And he ends with this. He says, rescue us because of our good works and efforts. Rescue us because we're dominating and we're kicking butt and taking names. No, rescue us because of your unfailing love. And that is exactly the promise that was made, that he would rescue you because of his unfailing love. You see, we feel like we are being led to the slaughter like sheep, but Jesus was like a sheep led to the slaughter. Paul opened up saying, I wish that I could be cursed that Israel might be saved. Jesus had already done that for Israel that they might be saved. He's already done it for you. You see, I couldn't offer 
myself to save Ethan's lip because it was his lip that was busted. The only way that I could have done that was somehow to take his lip and make it my lip and have it sewed back on. And that is what Christ did by taking your sin and my sin, putting it on him, that he might be cursed, that when he's on the cross said, God, why have you forsaken me? He was cursed. God turned his back on him. And he was qualified because he was the first human, the only human. He was all God, he was all human, but that lived a sin, tempted like you were and I were, tempted like all of us, and yet without sin. He was a, not just any sheep, he was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the whole world. Paul couldn't have offered himself for them. He wasn't the right sacrifice. You and I are not the right sacrifice. Only Jesus could and did. And this matters for us very much right now in the world that we live in here in front of us. Because if we'll stop long enough to try to debate and start in denominations about our Calvinism and Arminianism, and by the way, if you're following a theology that's named after anybody but Jesus, maybe rethink that one. But if we stop long enough to try to figure out something we're never gonna figure out, do you think that the God who hung the earth on nothing might know some things you don't know? I mean, is it plausible? that a God that's created a universe so large you could never come to the end of it might see something you don't see. And if that's true, maybe some of the things happening in your life right now, he might have something going on, he might be working in a way that you don't even know and you don't even see. And I wanna say something, it is again, mo at conduitchurch.com. Um, but I want to say this as kindly and lovingly and compassionately as I possibly can. But there are things that have maybe happened in your life that have actually been harmful, okay? You could call it abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, spiritual abuse. And it was a legitimate wrong against you. Does it mean God was not faithful? Does it mean that God is not righteous? Does it mean that God is not just? Right? And so what do you do with that? Do you start a blog about it? Or do you give it to Jesus? I'm not saying if you're in a horrible, abusive marriage that you stay there, don't hear me say that. It's one of the things that's the worst part of my job is people hear something that I didn't say. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying on the other hand is at some point, if I live in this world where I'm, I'm waiting for, if I'm waiting for God to heal me of something and he's saying I'm waiting for you to repent of it. Repentance just means changing your mind about something. Repentance just means I'm gonna change the way that I'm experiencing this and seeing this and seeing it the way that God sees it and experiencing it the way that God experiences it. Some of you are waiting to be healed of something that God is asking you to repent of. Feel the hurt, feel the pain. Not saying don't 
just whitewash over it. But at some point, you gotta dust off your clothes, you gotta get up off your knees, and you gotta go back into Babylon and get back to work. There's a culture right now that's seeping into the church. Now, I'm not saying this church, I'm talking church in America right now, where we're taking on the exact same cancel culture that the world has taken. And there is no gospel in it. If your job is to call out, to cast down, to rebuke, to write blogs about awful things that people have done, what would you have written about Abraham? What would you have written about Jacob? Golly, what would you have written about Paul? He was a murderer. You see, the miracle wasn't that, <laughs> it wasn't that God hated Esau, it was that he loved Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel. And so am I. And so are you. And what I love about the Bible is that God includes both of those stories of Abraham because both are true. And God says that he didn't save Abraham because Abraham was so awesome and so wonderful and so nice. He saved him because he loved him and he had mercy on whom he had mercy. And my question is, are you having revenge on someone that God wants to have mercy on? Think about it for just for today. Boundaries doesn't mean you have to bring that person back into your life. Doesn't mean you need to stay in a church where you're being treated horribly. This doesn't mean any of that. It just means that when you go to sleep at night, are you allowing God to have mercy on that person in the way that he has had mercy on you? I'm so thankful for that mercy. And I've learned over the years that there are things that have happened and we'll talk about a little bit next week, some of the stories that I've experienced, but I just had to let some of that go and realize that I'm asking God to heal it. And he's like, you just need to repent, Darren. Let it go. You holding on to it, it's not helping you. It was actually me being Holy Ghost Jr., getting up on the chair and me saying, hey, scoot over, Jesus. I got this one. I'm gonna, I'll judge this guy. I tell you, one of the greatest freedoms you'll ever get is when you retire your position as Holy Ghost Junior. It is so freeing. <laughs> Let him do it. He's great at it. In the words of my father, know your role, shut your hole. <laughs> All right, stand up, let's pray. Heavenly Father. <laughs> Lord, I pray that those words actually, oh, I pray that they're heard the way that I meant them to be heard and that they're not heard the way that I didn't mean them. Pray that your spirit, Lord, would allow us to all be about the grace of God and not the judgment of the Pharisees. Lord, might we be about the grace of the cross and not the voice of the mob. Lord, that in Romans 9, Lord, we, you are faithful, you are kind, you are good, and you are just. And we can trust that you'll take care of the rest. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.